Father, we, um, we miss Tavon. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in his life, that you would draw him to you, that he would know your love, and that he could be restored back here to us. We ask this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We've kind of had some on and off on that, and, uh, and we're back. And it's a great passage. For context, I'd like to read the entire chapter. We're going to look at verses 12 to 30 specifically today, but um, I just would like to back up and we'll, we'll read the whole chapter because uh, what comes before in this chapter Uh, supports and ties in with today's message. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself 
will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. It's a beautiful passage, and as a theme for this morning's message, I'd like us to consider God's work of grace in our lives. If we begin in verse 12, um, Paul, in writing, says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I often think um, of, the, of the controversy and the discussions that surround the idea of the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. And I don't plan to, to delve into that too much this morning, only to touch on it and say that so often in Scripture, when we see one area that talks about the sovereignty of God, we also see very often the free will of man going hand in hand. And I often feel like, Both are true, right? Um, It says, for us to work out our salvation, and then the next verse says, and God works. And so there's a commitment to what we do and what God is doing. First off, we're to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so the first thing is for us to obey. And then it says, work out your own salvation. We're responsible in some ways for our own salvation. We take care of our bodies. I go to the gym twice a week. I try to work out at home. I walk. I try to be active. A number of other people here exercise and train and do various things. We care for our bodies. If we don't care for our souls, then just like we could let our bodies go, We can let our souls go. Proverbs 6, verse 10, it says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon us. If that's true of our work, then it's true of our spiritual lives as well. If we put nothing into our salvation, into our spiritual lives, then there's going to be a spiritual poverty that's going to come upon us. So we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're responsible. And we're sensitive. That idea of fear and trembling, I think, has a lot of different facets to it. But as we rehearse the greatness of God's grace and his love for us, we see how precious it is. 
And that's part of the fear and trembling part. Not that we're going to lose our salvation but, or be afraid of God um, and what he might do to us, but as children before him, the hurt and the sadness that we could bring to him in disappointing him as our heavenly father if we live our lives in a way that's not pleasing to him. And then God is at work. It says that, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, Just thinking about God, he's never too busy for us, right? I mean, if you think of um, back in in Kings, um, where there was sort of the showdown between the priests of Baal and the God of Israel. And they're going to have a sacrifice. And the God is to consume the sacrifice. And the priests of Baal are, are dancing around the sacrifice and nothing is happening. And Elijah mocks them. And he says, you know, perhaps you should cry louder. Maybe he's musing. Maybe he is relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and has to be awakened. Elijah mocks them because that's the image of a God that maybe could be distracted. And as an example in my own life, I mean, I can be too busy. I can be too busy for people. Nora can say, Pops, can you read to me? Or can you play with me? And I may say, well, I'm in the middle of doing something. I'll be back in a minute. Or, and sometimes that minute turns into that it never happens. And so a thing that I have to learn is when it's pops, can you read to me or play with me? I have that moment. But God never is saying to us, I'm too busy or I have something else that I'm doing. In Psalm 121, it says that the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. That's our God. That's the God who is at work in our lives. He's at work transforming us and changing us and renewing us, and he never sleeps. So be encouraged by that. I think one of my favorite groups of verses are the next ones here in in Philippians, where it says, to do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We do live in a crooked and twisted generation. There's a lot of things in our culture and our lives that are swirling around that are not right, and we all know that. And as simply as doing things without grumbling or complaining, we can shine like stars. Do you know what I take encouragement from? I can do that. I think I can not be a grumbler and not be a complainer, not be one that's questioning all the time. The grumbling's outward. The questioning may be inward, like, why am I doing this, God? I can't even, you know. But if we don't do those things, then the world can't judge us, and we aren't judging ourselves. We're knowing that we did the right thing. And who doesn't want to shine like a star in the world? Let's look at now 
the grace of God working in the lives of three, three men here in this passage. We know a fair bit about Paul. We know about his past. We know that he was, had great upbringing. He had great lineage. He had great education. He was a leader. He was proud. He was ruthless. Think about it. He conducted violent executions as he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, he did it with a mindset that he was right and purging something that was wrong. But to stand aside while people are stoned to death, I mean, that's the nature of this man. And now we see God's grace in this man who was a leader and now is learning submission. Paul was a natural leader, and now he's submissive to the Lord's leading in his life. In verse 19, we see that Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus. In verse 23, I hope, therefore. In verse 24, I trust in the Lord. Paul's in prison. He is in a place where he's now accepting what God has for him. He's not trusting in Rome as a Roman citizen. He's not trusting in the process that justice and the right thing is going to happen to him from a worldly perspective. But he's learned submission and can say that I hope and trust in the Lord. And we also see here in this passage as it works out, as Paul writes about what's happening to himself and these other men in the passage, we see the tender heart of Paul. Some time ago when um, Bob Dad spoke here, he mentioned a conversation that he was having with someone where they said, I actually don't think I would like Paul very much. He's kind of harsh. He's kind of rigid. He's kind of uptight. And he is like by the book, and it's my way or the highway, right? I mean, there is some sense of that imagery that you could read things and see a harsh side. And he said, well, actually, I feel like I see in him so much a tender heart as he writes about caring for people, about loving people. And so here we see perhaps another little glimpse into the tender heart of Paul where he went from that violent man that persecutor to having a tender heart where he says, I'm glad and rejoicing over the believers who are growing in the love of Jesus. He's rejoicing in his remembrances of those that he's worked with and loves and cares for. He sends Timothy to, to them or promises that he will as, as a work for them but then he's going to be alone. So he's giving up the one that was his companion for the sake of others. He sends back Epaphroditus, who was sent to care for him and help him in his imprisonment because Epaphroditus became sick. And 
Epaphroditus is upset because the people were worried about him, and they're worried about him because he almost died, and they want to see him, and because they love him and they, and they care for him. So he's sending both of these, these men away um, out of love for Christians in Philippi. And he sends Epaphroditus back not as a failure, um, but as someone who should be welcomed as a hero. So that tenderness of the heart of Paul where he's, by God's grace, made a transition from a persecutor and a violent man to one who has deep care and love for people. And then we look at Timothy, a young man whose father was a Greek and his mother was a Jewish, and he was, he was a natural second-place guy. Um, and perhaps it was that he learned that by the example of Jesus, you know, going back earlier in this chapter where we read that it says, have this mind among yourselves. Well, back the verse before that, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And so Timothy here has, maybe by nature, but also by following the example of Christ, taken the form of a servant. And the high praise that Paul gives him, where he says that um, Timothy, Timothy will be anxious for your welfare and that he is devoted to Christ beyond all others. What a high accolade that is. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we love that to be said of us, that we are devoted to Christ above all others? Sadly, the verse that follows is that for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. How e- easy it is for me to take interest in myself. Look at the pie Decide which part the crust is just cooked perfectly the way I want it. Who's getting that slice? Me. Because it's all about me, right? I mean, there's, there's so many things where we can look to our own interests. I need this time. I have a right to this. I have, you know, this coming to me. And that's not how it is in our faith, in, in Christianity. It says that we're, all, we're to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others. Do good to all men, especially those who are in the household of faith. We need to love each other. And Timothy is not grudging his position of second place. Paul, you know, says that he's served with me and and has affirmed his, his serving, but still always being in the shadow there was a national movement some time back. I remember Julie wearing a, I don't know, it was a blue little wristband I don't know, or black or something. It said, I am second. Well, I am second was really that I'm second to Christ. That Christ is first. Christ should be first. And I'm second. But I would say that Christ and others should be first. And then I come second. 
It's a good reminder to just think, I am second, and to be okay with that. And Timothy is a slave for the gospel. He's will- he, he apparently seems to be willing to go anywhere there's a need and to serve. And our hearts should be the same way, to be ready to go where there's a need and to serve. And there's plenty of a need right around us. So, you know, we're not all having to make a road trip or something like that, but look at the needs in our lives, in our families' lives, in, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. And Timothy is proven. Paul says, Timothy has proved himself. So let us prove ourselves by God's grace. And then Epaphroditus. I think of this as, um, you know, when I'm saying that God's work of grace in people's lives, that this is God's grace to the discouraged. Here you have this guy who, who goes off He's sent off to minister to Paul to help him um, to be a personal attendant of someone waiting trial. Someone waiting trial who's on trial for a capital offense. He's putting himself at risk by, by going and doing. He's making an association with, I don't know, a known felon. Not exactly, but you know, think about it. You know, if, if we're going to identify with a guy in prison who's on trial... Um, so he's putting himself at risk. And in his travels, he becomes sick. It says that he got sick and almost died. And now there's anxiety between him worrying about the people that he left and the people that he did leave worrying about him. There's just everybody, everybody is concerned. And, and he, I think, is dealing with with just that idea of, of probably discouragement, I failed. Um, things didn't play out the way I expected them to. The circumstances of life beyond my control. Um, th- there's not supposed to be any gamblers here. But, well, I don't know. <laughs> there could be. Um, but anyway, in verse 30 it says... He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That risking his life, it's really a gambler's term. He staked it all. He went all in. Um, and, And so if, you know, to use the analogy... If a gambler is staking it all and going all in, he's risking everything. He's putting it all there because of what he hopes the outcome is going to be. And the same thing, I think, that Epaphroditus, in, in his work and service for Paul, he stakes it all. He goes all in. I submit to you that I don't know if I see myself often being ready to go all in in that way, but I think that's God, what God wants from us, is that we're, for him, we're really ready to go all in. And Paul, in turn, calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger, and your minister. Paul is making sure that this brother 
who can be worn out and discouraged and put down from all that's gone returns not as a failure, but as a hero's welcome with honor. Honor men like him. I'm not saying that we do it for honor, but we should recognize when somebody has gone in that we do honor them and that we commend them for their service. These are all like first-generation Christians, right? I mean, the Christianity, this is baby, baby Christianity. Paul's a new convert. Timothy has to be a, real, a new convert. Epaphroditus, a new convert. They wouldn't probably have associated with each other. Epaphroditus was a Gentile dog to Saul the persecutor, right? Timothy, I don't know. I don't know how they would feel about the Greek and the Jewishness and whether he's a half-breed or whatever, but just culturally and, and racially and everything like that, these are not people that would have been together. But now, as we think about the work of God's grace in each of their lives, we see that by God's grace, now they're working together. Um, now they're serving together. They're serving alongside each other. They're brothers in Christ, cooperating in the work. Um, we need to be the same. And I don't think it's easy. And that's where we go back to work out your salvation with fear and trembling and God working in us. For us to be working together with each other, with varying backgrounds, varying stages in our lives, it's not automatic. There's the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that Holy Spirit testifies amongst ourselves that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But it also takes work. We can annoy each other. A lot, probably. Um, we can wonder why some people are here and wish they weren't. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> but, um, but we need to work at loving each other. It's not automatic. There's a bond but we need to work together, working out our salvation, loving our brothers and sisters as part of it. So God works, and we work. Our faith is a joint participation. We should be challenged to hope and trust in the Lord, to live willing to serve as Jesus served, to keep going even when we're discouraged by life's twists and turns. To try to live well together as broken people helping broken people. I'd like to just um, actually conclude the sermon with the last part of the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus from John 17 verses 20 to 26. And here we see the Lord. He's prayed for those that he's with. He's prayed for, when I say with, physically with, those who have been his disciples here on earth. And now he's praying for us. And this is what Jesus prays for us. 
I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's our testimony, our love for one another. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Do some spiritual exercise this week. Work out your salvation, your own salvation. Don't be spiritually flabby. Put into your faith something. Um, There's a a popular Christian artist. Well, I don't know how popular he is, but um, he wrote a song called Experience, Charlie Peacock. And he said, you only possess what you experience. Truth is to be understood, must be lived. And so as you work out your spiritual exercise and learn some truth, then go out and live it. We can't tell people about a theory of Jesus. We need to be able to live Jesus before the world and share with them the relationship that we have with the living God. Amen? That's it. That's all I got.
I know.